Oh, what a sense to be alive. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Meaning Stream, everybody. Welcome to the Meaning Stream. I'm your host, Akira the Dawn. Yes, I am. Trees. Where do trees come from? Does anyone know? Where do trees come from? Any, anyone know? Any idea? Any idea? At the ground? Ding dong, you're wrong. Ding dong, you're wrong, but we'll get onto that in a minute. We'll get into that in a minute, by Joe. Yes, we will. Uh, this edition of the Meaning Stream is sponsored by MeaningWave.com. MeaningWave.com is your life lacking meaning. Is your life lacking meaningful apparel? Head on over to MeaningWave.com. You will find both. You'll find meaning and meaningful apparel. Yes, you will. You'll, you'll even find velvet tracksuits. Yeah, you will. You will. Velvet tracksuits covered in animal prints. Yes, you will. Imagine that. MeaningWave.com. Because happiness is a side effect of meaning. Smash that like. So the tree is carbon. Where did that come from? That comes from the air. It's carbon dioxide from the air. People look at trees and they think it comes out of the ground. The plants grow out of the ground. But if you ask where the substance comes from, you find out where does it come from? Trees come out of the air? They surely come out of the air. No, they come out of the air. No, they come out of the air. The carbon dioxide in the air goes into the tree and it changes it, kicking out the oxygen and uh, pushing the oxygen away from the carbon and leaving the carbon substance with water. Water comes out of the ground. Only it came out of the air, didn't it? It came down from the sky. So in fact, most of the tree, almost all of the tree is out of the ground. I'm sorry, it's out of the air. Now, of course, I told you the oxygen and carbon stick together very tight. How is it the tree is so smart managed to take the carbon dioxide, just the carbon oxygen nicely combined, and undo that so easy? Ah, life. Life has some mysterious force. No, the sun is shining. And it's the sunlight that comes down and knocks its oxygen away from the carbon. So it takes sunlight to get the plant to work. And so the sun all the time is doing the work of separating the oxygen away from the carbon. The oxygen is some kind of terrible byproduct which it spits back into the air and leaving the carbon and water and stuff to make the substance of the tree. Then when we take the substance of the tree and stick it in the fireplace, there's all the oxygen made by these trees. And all the carbon would much prefer to be close together again. And once you let the heat to get it started, it continues and makes an awful lot of activity while it's going back together again. And all this nice light and everything comes out. And everything is being undone. You're going back from carbon and oxygen, back to carbon dioxide. And the light and heat that's coming out, that's the light and heat of the sun that went in. The sun that went in. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a lot. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn the log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out. When you burn a log. And everything is being undone. You're going back from carbon and oxygen, back to carbon dioxide. And the light and 
heat that's coming out, that's the light and heat of the sun that went in. The sun that went in. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out. Sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn a log. What's up with you? What's up with you, baby? How you feeling out there? Welcome. Welcome, baby. We in February now. Welcome to February. It's Tuesday. It's Meaning Crisis and Chill on the Meaning Stream. The Meaning Stream. The Meaning Stream. The stream in which uh, all your dreams come true. All your dreams of, uh, of glory and epic activities and, uh, you know... Pursue DJs playing epic uh, music mixed with lectures, you know. Yeah, those dreams. Those dreams! What's going on, baby? What's going on? Hey. Pew, pew, pew. Faye says, trees also come out of your mind. If you want to look at it from a neurological perspective, you should experience them in your head. Hey, thank you, Faze. It's nice to see you. Welcome back, Faze. Faze is back. Faze, where have you been? Faze has been adventuring somewhere. Faze, have you been adventuring? Good to see you. What's up, Cindy Bailey? What up, Cedric Taj? What up, Ragam Zero? What up, Demon? Uh, what up, Robert Easy? What up, everybody? Backstreet's back. Aye. Timothy Delgado says, Rocket Launcher. Flat. DMT. Is that code? Do the FBI have you? Do you need help? Do you need help, Timothy Delgado? Shall we send someone? Word XP has just popped in. What did I miss? Well, we just started. Yeah, miss much. Phased reappeared. Uh, Timothy Delgado has been kidnapped by the FBI. Uh, Jules Vaughn's in the house, and Rug M Zero says, I, uh, you know, so we're doing pretty good. It's meaning crisis and chill tonight. Face says I got sidetracked with video games. Oh, that's not quite the adventure I was, I was hoping. <laughs> He's like, oh, what's he been doing? What's Faze been doing? Did he transcend this mortal form? Did he work out how to levitate? No, he's been playing video games. What video game you? What video games distracted you to this to the point that you disappeared uh, from the earth for four months, Faze? When did Faze disappear? Let me think. It was November, wasn't it? 
it was Oct late October, early November. It was basically just after he did the artwork for the Jordan Peterson album. He did the artwork for the Jordan Peterson album. And then he disappeared. What happened to that time? Wasn't cyberpunk, was it? Did cyberpunk steal you, phased? Is that what it was? The timing suggests it might have been. Ah, oh, man. Timothy Delgado is still having problems with the FBI. Kick him in the nuts, Timothy Delgado. Carlos Monez says, hey man, I love your work. The Jordan Peterson album is effing great. Hey, thank you. What a lovely thing to say. Uh, Faze hasn't just been playing Cyberpunk, he's also played Ghosts of uh, Shushima, Demon Souls, Finite Fantasy Seven, Death Strand. Bloody hell, he's been going hard. You're going hard, Faze. Faze been going hard in, the, in, hard in the paint. How you feeling now? Do you feel good? Did you learn anything? I, I discovered something epic. Um, this won't be too too interesting to most people, but after the streams, what I do is I send the track listing to Alex, uh, Shark Hero Alex, you know, and Shark Hero Alex adds the track listing to the broadcast. There hasn't been a track listing for the past few streams, uh, and this is not because, uh, as as Alex thought, like the uh, tracklist generation software had broken. That happened for two days. Then I fixed it. Uh, but I've been sending them to Steve Disco Newsom. Steve Disco Newsom thought I was just sending him track listings so that he had like lists of cool songs to find. I only just noticed. So the past three, the past three track listings you've not had because I sent them to Steve Disco Newsom. Just in case you were wondering, you know. Anyway, that I've now realized. Now realized my mistake. Only because Steve Disco Newsom replied by sending me some songs. It's like a return, like a nice DJ favor, you know, a favor for a favor. Uh, if you don't know who Steve Disco is, Steve Disco Newsom is, that's our friend from the morning show. You know, the morning show, he's, he's, we do the morning show on Twitch and there are other DJs on Twitch. We've got a whole gang now. We've got a whole gang of, of DJ friends, you know, and Steve's a great DJ friend, you know. Uh, the day after the, uh, was that yesterday? Yesterday morning, I believe. Yeah, yesterday morning, the day after, the day after uh, the Indiegogo campaign blowout. Uh, he called into the show and we had a nice conversation which helped me coax myself back into the world after only sleeping for like three and a half hours, you know. After DJing for 18 hours. So that was nice and, uh, you know, you, you can see those on the replay. Uh, Steve Disco Newsom's a lovely chap. And so lovely a chap. And, and here's the thing, we have this wonderful rapport. So it seemed perfectly normal that I would be sending in my track listings in their entirety as a... As a DJ homie favor, you know, DJ homie favor. Here's my track listing of all my secret songs, you know. Uh, of course, if I was being a real good DJ homie, I would just send him a folder, wouldn't I? Like making him do all that hard work. Here's a list of songs. Now go download them all. <laughs> Jules Vaughan says marauding gangs of DJs. Well, we're, we're, that's what we're doing. This whole thing, this is really a cover so that all the DJs can find each other and get together, you know? After the inevitable DJ takeover, when we enter Mad Max world. Because you know right now, we're basically, uh, we're, on, we're, we're at this junction. We're at this junction in the story. And uh, in one direction is sci-fi world, Star Trek new generation world, you know, where we're, we're epic and we're kind of ascended and we've transcended our petty issues and we're, 
roaming around the cosmos, like, uh, you know, looking for enlightened adventures, you know? Then the other side is uh, Mad Max World, you know, where we kind of messed up a lot of stuff and, uh, and we're roaming around in sort of re repurposed vehicles, like having sort of rather savage adventures, you know, and, and uh, trying to steal people's gas. And that's it. Some people, some people think that we're headed into some kind of like brave new world, the 84, 1984 thing. We're kind of already in one of those, really. Uh, but that thing, believing that means you have to believe that the powers that be know what the, they're doing and are competent, competent enough uh, to actually uh, carry out such a thing. And frankly, based on all the evidence, and I've been paying attention for a long time, I've been paying attention for a long time, I think the evidence suggests they are not competent enough to pull that off. Therefore, sci-fi world, next generation world, or Mad Max world. That's basically it. I don't know which one I'm going for, but I wouldn't be too, I wouldn't I would be okay in the other one as well. You know, I think I, I think I'd do all right as a warlord, you know. That's part that's also partly what's going on here in the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone, you know. Your friendly neighborhood wave lord. I'm just kind of practicing for potential warlord. Uh, position, you know, I'm just making sure I've got my diction and my uh, leadership abilities and my vibe regulation abilities, and also, also the ability to control a lot of technology while simultaneously, you know, uh, dealing with great big issues that might come along and communicating the plan, you know. The plan. <laughs> so, uh, you guys, for the international high five, before we get into our wonderful lecture. Before we get into our wonderful, wonderful lecture, uh, please let me know what you think on, on this suggestion. Do you think we're going into a sci-fi world? Star Trek Next Generation-esque sci-fi world? Or do you think it's Mad Max? Or something else? Let me know what you see coming, because something's coming pretty fast. Pretty fast, Savage Chill, who says correctly, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. That's right. And uh, YouTube Hero Alex is finally um, started uh, addressing Timothy Delgasso, uh, who, who seems to have been kidnapped by the FBI. Or, or has uh, had his keyboard uh, stolen by a clockwork elf. And clockwork elves, remember, that their language is... Um, what is their language? What are they speaking? What do they call it? It's certainly not words, is it? <laughs> it's not words. It's not words, no, it's not words, Timothy Delgasso, who keeps typing out W-O-R over and over. W-O-R. Indeed. Um, if you're here for the lecture, by the way, if you're here for the live scored lecture and, and you don't need this kind of preamble in your life, feel free to uh, skip ahead. Uh, there's a timestamp in the description, unless, of course, you're live, in which case, of course, preamble is all part of the joy, isn't it? It's all part of the fun. And uh, you, you should enjoy it while you can, you know? Can. Oh, Timothy Delgado got out uh, something I understand. He wrote DMT Elf. Maybe, oh, well, there you go. Maybe that's what it is. Full Killer, Maryland, Star Trek World, Optimistic and Wrong. <laughs> Optimistic and Wrong. Wow. Okay, that sounds good. Jules Vaughn says, Mile High City. Check in. Pew, pew. D-Man says, I think uh, the ones left on Earth will be Mad Maxing. The ones that leave will be the ones Starfleeting. Oh, uh, okay. Joey Strachan says, Migration to tribal life in the internet. Wait, has that already happened? Welcome to the BD Wave Autonomous Zone. Miranda Alex says, I say it's a throwback to a Linkin Park beauty of AB album, hybrid theory of Mad Max and sci-fi. Uh, Mikey Mike says, I think we're heading towards a very healthy and green world. Uh, P-O-W-E, 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 P-O-W-E,
Powered by Elon. Powered by Elon. Green world. Powered by Elon. Coming soon to a planet near you. Uh, S says, is both. Uh, YouTube Hero Alex says, please try not to spam the chat, buddy. That's not, that's not, look at him, look at Shark Hero Alex just doing his beautiful things. It's okay, sorry. Timothy Delgado says, okay, sorry. See, there you go, boom. A lesser mod would have would have got in there with some kind of implement, you know. Uh, Rodzor says, get it, woo! Hello from British Columbia, Canada. Hello, hello, hello. Mikey Mike says, ha ha, sorry. Why would you do? Uh, D-Man says, lol, lol. Savage Shell, Massachusetts. I feel kind of drawn to Mad Max world, but I'd be willing to join a super future in space. So you're drawn to kind of like anarchy and, uh, and a likelihood of death. Very uh, brutish and painful death, you know, and, and uh, spray paint in your face. You know, you're drawn to that, but okay, fine. If there's going to be a, a wonderful, you know, uh, kind of like neo space enlightenment, you'll you'll deal with it if you have to. Okay, great, very nice. Uh, Ragham Zero says wholesome. Mason says space monkeys for the win. And that's a fair enough assessment, I would say. Superconductor says, I would like to see you pwn someone in the Thunderdome, Akira. Is that a euphemism, Miss Superconductor? <laughs> Pwning in the, in the Thunderdome. Tonight on the Meaning Stream, broadcasting live from Mad Max World, Earth, the peak of recorded human civilization. Here at the dawn, getting doing some poning in the Thunderdome. It's kind of right, poning the Thunderdome. Thunderdome in itself, as a, as a word, has got all sorts of suggestive, suggestive qualities. Now Thunderdome, pium! Aye, 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 aye. This is supposed to be a, an intellectual stream. This is an intellectual stream by Jove. Calm yourself. Calm yourself. All right, all right, all right. I think that that if the, you know if that doesn't deserve an international high five, I don't know what does. Do you? Do you? Do you know what does? I'll tell you what does. That. So let's get it. That's my clickety clack. There it is. Three, two, one. But, 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 hi. High five. Yeah, high five, exactly. We're saying hi. And uh, we're going to play you a song. It's coming out on Friday. It's from the new Akira the Dawn album. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's right. New Akira the Dawn album in a couple of weeks. It's Akira the Dawn and Graham Hancock. This song is called Fully Symbolic Creatures. Years of boredom, 
the evolutionary ascent of our species from the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee. Something extraordinary happened to us less than 100,000 years ago, which by the way is long after we'd become anatomically modern. It was a kind of emergence into consciousness. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And this great change has been defined as the single most important step forward in the evolution of human behavior is intimately associated with the emergence of the great and transcendent rock and cave art all around the world. years, researchers have suggested an intriguing and radical possibility, which is that this emergence into consciousness was triggered by our ancestors' encounters triggered. with visionary plants. We became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. And we became fully symbolic creatures. Fully symbolic creatures. If you analyze the cave art, there are so many details that make it clear that this was an art of altered states of consciousness, of visions. Of visions. Plants like the Amanita muscaria mushroom or psilocybin mushroom appear to have been directly connected with this sudden and radical change. And we became fully symbolic creatures fully symbolic creatures and we became fully symbolic creatures fully symbolic creatures and we became fully symbolic creatures fully symbolic creatures and we became fully symbolic creatures 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 We became fully symbolic creatures Fully symbolic creatures Fully symbolic creatures We became fully symbolic creatures Visionary class.
Bria. Kira the Don and Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock and Kira the Don. From the album The War on Consciousness. Coming February 21. Oh, hey, we're in February 21. We ain't got long to wait. That thing drops on all platforms on Friday. Well, Thursday night. Depending on where you look. Might play another song from it later. But for now, you know what it is, baby. You know what it is. It's meaning crisis and chill. With Viveki Don, Viveki John, Lady Kira the Don, aka, you know, if we were doing like a Doom, Doom MF Doom type collab album, you know, this would be uh, Don Viveki. Ow! Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we were discussing the Axial Age uh, within ancient India, and we were, figuring, we were focusing in on the pivotal figure of Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the Buddha, and we had been talking about um, his particular story. We talked about the two modes of being um, that were being represented in his story of leaving the palace, the having mode and the being mode. And we talked about modal confusion and about overcoming it. We followed him to uh, where he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and he achieves um, a deep kind of realization, a deep state of enlightenment. Along the way we had discussed um, what mindfulness is, how mindfulness operates through attentional scaling, and how it can increase your cognitive flexibility, your capacity for insight. And then we were trying to draw this all together with some cognitive science, a discussion of what is it uh, to experience enlightenment. Now, I'm not offering right now a complete account or anything like a comprehensive theory of enlightenment. We're going to be slowly working towards that as we move through uh, this lecture series. But I do want to get into and continue the discussion of these higher states of consciousness. So if you remember, they're very problematic. Uh, but that they're at the core of many of the Axial Age um, world religions and uh, uh, foundational philosophies. This is the idea that people have an alternative state of consciousness that they regard as somehow more real than their everyday uh, state of consciousness. And that's problematic precisely because we tend to judge realness by how well we get an, uh, an overall coherence in our intelligibility, how we're making sense of things. But in these altered states, that are very different from our everyday consciousness and therefore do not cohere with it, people do the alternative. Instead of rejecting it the way we reject dreaming, for example, because it doesn't cohere with our everyday experience, people reject the everyday experience as illusory and they say that this state of consciousness somehow gives them an improved access to reality. And as you remember, as we've been going through the Axial Age Revolution, and the sense of wisdom and meaning that is attended upon it, this ability to transcend through illusion and get connected to what is more real is central to what wisdom means and having some deep sense of connectedness to reality is also central to what it is to regard one's life as authentically meaningful in some fashion. 
So that was the problem we had set up, the problem of higher states of consciousness. Now I want to start by talking about what it's like uh, to give a theory. We talked about this also last time. We want a theory that's both descriptively adequate and prescriptively adequate. A descriptive theory should tell me, like, give me a good explanation for why these higher states of consciousness have the experiential feel that they have why they, and why they're able to produce these deep kinds of transformations. Because if you remember, what typically happens is because people have sensed this deep connectedness to reality, and because being connected to reality is one of fundamental ways in which we make our lives meaningful, people will radically transform their whole lives, their sense of self, their interpersonal relationship, in order to maintain and enhance that connectedness to this deepened reality. So we need to explain, give a descriptively adequate explanation, and this has to work at multiple levels, and this is where cognitive science is so important uh, because of the way it tries to bridge between these various levels and disciplines. We need to give an account of the psychological processes, of the information processes, and ultimately uh, the brain processes that are at work. Then we need a prescriptively adequate theory of higher states of consciousness. We need an account that explains why it might be considered rationally justifiable that these states authorize and legitimate such transformations. Can we see why these states should be listened to when they claim to give us access to a deeper reality? Now, in order to carry out the first one, seeing what the Siddhartha was going through, achieving this higher state of consciousness, this awakened state, and if you remember last time we talked about how, how comprehensively extended this is, not only qualitatively through the world religions, but just quantitatively through the population, that 30 to 40 percent of people uh, report these awakening experiences and the resulting deep transformation. So in order to get through that, let's talk about what, what does it feel like to be in such a state. And because we have these surveys and we have the work of Newberg and Taylor, and we have lots of first-person accounts, we can draw some general pictures of what's going on. So there's three components we want to look at. We want to look at how is the world being experienced, how is the self being experienced, and how is the relationship between the world the self being experienced. So let's start on the world side. So people report the following things. They report um, a tremendous sense of clarity. And this is both perceptual and cognitive. So the world seems extremely clear to them and makes sense to them in a way that it hasn't before. The perceptual part of that clarity is often, ex uh, often experienced as bright. Things are shining. Um, and that's the original meaning of glory, for example. Uh, uh, to go back to the Bible, for example, the term that is most often used to describe God is glory, which is not a moral term. It's a term about how sort of shining um, God is, how, how bright it is. Now, you remember, uh, that's a feature that people also reliably report in the flow experience, that everything seems very vivid and bright um, and intense. Now what's interesting is that while people describe this clarity, and notice how this is going to pick up on what we talked about when we talked about mindfulness, they talk about both an expansion of vision, 
very comprehensive. They get almost like they're somehow aware of the whole of the world, but they also are aware of finite details. So this is captured, for example, in Blake's famous poem, right? To see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and to spend eternity in an hour. So you get this deep interpenetration of sort of everything and the finite details. And you can see that. So what you're getting is this massive expansion of that attentional scaling that we talked about mindfulness enhancing and thereby enhancing our capacity to break frame and make frame and get fundamental insight. And pay attention to the word insight. Seeing into reality. So overall there's an increased sense of making sense of things. Right? Making sense of things. So the world is both intricate and interesting in this extended and enhanced and shining way. So almost universally, people describe this experience as the world is beautiful. It's deeply beautiful to them. And we'll come back at some point to talk about the connections between beauty and truth, uh, particularly the work of Skari about this. The world is very alive. It seems very alive during this experience because it's so pregnant with energy and significance. And all of this, all of this comprehensiveness, but intricate detail, the shining, the beauty, the making sense, all of this comes together in the notion of oneness. There's somehow an underlying oneness to everything. There's deep and profound integration, which of course, makes sense given that very often when we are explaining something we are finding what unifies and integrates them together. What's happening on the side of the self? What's happening on the side of the self is people report a profound sense of peace. And this is not peace in an empty just lack of conflict. It's very similar to what we talked about in Plato. And you're probably seeing Plato's ideas about anagage resonating with this. I hope you're seeing that. But remember in Plato, right, that inner state of peace is one of inner harmony. When all of the various components of your personality and your cognition are mutually optimally working together in concert. And this is the kind what people report. They often report that this is the greatest sense of peace they've ever experienced in their life. And if you remember in Plato, this sense of peace, right, is connected to and resonates with this enhanced sense of connectedness to reality. And interestingly enough, that's what we're seeing in these, um, in these descriptions. People also describe uh, experiencing profound joy. Now, of course, we've lost the sense of what this word means. Uh, we've lost it precisely in words like enjoyment, where enjoyment means having fun or pleasure. But joy is not the experience of fun or pleasure. Joy is the positive emotion you have when you experience a deep connection to what is good. So joy is the experience you have of this is really, really good. Interestingly, people often report a fundamental change in their sense of self, and we're going to come back to this. They report two things. 
They'll often report that their normal sense of self has disappeared, their egocentric, autobiographical sense of self has disappeared. And if you remember, that's, that's continuous with what we saw when people are in the flow state. They report that self-consciousness, that autobiographical narrative self is disappearing. They often also remembering in the sense we talked about when we talked about sati and remembering the being mode. They remember, they say, I remember my true self. I remember who I really am. So there's a profound connection inward to the core machinery of the self that is at one with a profound sense of connecting to the underlying pattern that governs and makes intelligible reality. People report that in this state they have a tremendous uh, sense of energy and vitality, again analogous to the flow state. And finally, they report that they're going, they often use this term, there's a tremendous sense of insight and understanding. Again, continuous with the flow state. Now what about the relation? So this is deep connection, profound connectedness, deep at one again like the flow state, but even more, people feel so at one that they start to feel that they're participating in their reality that they're connected to. They start to feel like they're sharing identity to it. And this your way of thinking about this is when we talked about Aristotle's notion of the conformity theory of knowing. They, they feel so deeply conformed to this underlying reality from the very core of their being that they are experiencing an identification with it. But this participatory knowing is so superlative and it's so profound and so transformative that inevitably people just say that the experience, like this connection is ineffable. And we've, we noted this well, last time we were talking about it. How is it that these experiences that have no right, articulable declarative content, because they're ineffable, you can't put them into words, you can't put them into propositional thought, nevertheless are considered so, so loaded with, so capable of bearing the signature of ultimate reality or realness for people. So we need a descriptive theory that can account for all of these features, the features of how the world is experienced, how the self is experienced, and the relation. Now, what I've been showing you already, of course, is deep continuity with the flow experience. I'm not claiming it's a flow experience, it's more than that, but I'm showing you that there's continuity, just like I showed you that there's continuity between the flow experience and the insight experience. And that's why when people are having these higher states of consciousness, they are also uh, proposing a, a, a very profound insight. And notice how often when you have an insight, it's also ineffable to you. You don't know how the insight arose, or what comes, how it came to be, just like, ah, I just see it. Now, some other important things we should know about uh, these states. These states are often preceded by disruptive strategies. Disruptive strategies.
These are strategies that are designed to disrupt your normal cognitive functioning and to alter your state of consciousness. So they can range from very long-term strategies, very short-term strategies. Long-term strategies can be the ones we've already described, like Siddhartha. Siddhartha was engaged for six years in these practices, these mindfulness practices of meditation and contemplation, and they bring about right, a, a very long-term, incremental, but nevertheless also profound disruption in your normal state of consciousness and cognition. People also can pursue very short-term disruptive strategies. These include things like fasting, sexual and sleep deprivation. If you remember, we talked about how shamans will make use of these strategies in order to induce the shamanic state. There are, uh, they will expose themselves to uh, drumming, chanting. All of these things disrupt your normal level of cognition. And of course, when we talked about this as well, people will make use of psychedelics, precisely because of the way they are so deeply disruptive of your normal cognition and your normal state of consciousness. So, what we know is that combinations, well, sorry, that's a little too strong. What we have good, some initial good evidence is that combinations of these strategies can be very good. There was a recent experiment coming out of the Griffiths Lab in 2018 in which uh, people who were practicing uh, mindfulness and then took psychedelics tended to have a more enhanced experience than people who were just taking the psychedelics for example. So um, you can combine the strategies together, they can be mutually supportive. Now what's important for this, as we'll come back and take a look at more carefully in a few minutes, is disruptive strategies are also central to setting up insight. And that should make sense to you given what we've talked about. You have to do a lot of breaking the frame before you can open up the possibility of making an entirely new, new frame. There was a recent uh, experiment run by Yadin and Al in 2017. Um, they had, uh, they had uh, 701 participants. 69% um, of them uh, reported this, what I called ontonormativity, this sense of the enhanced realness of their higher states of consciousness. And this was actually predictive of significant improvement across many dimensions of their life. Right? There was significant improvement in family life, health, sense of purpose, spirituality, and, re and a release from the anxiety and fear of death. So the claim that these states do guide transformation has received um, empirical backing. Now, Yaden also brings out something important in that study that you don't see very well articulated in Newberg and in Taylor. And this is one of the disruptive strategies that, are, are, that people are often using, and it bleeds into the phenomenology. By that, I mean the experiential feel and structure of these experience. Right? And this is the notion of decentering. So when people describe these experiences, they shift from right, a very sort of first-person orientation, an egocentric, to an allocentric. So they are not so egocentric. This is why this is called decentering. They're speaking more from like a third-person perspective, and 
right? Allocentric. So let me just give you a quick uh, understanding of the difference between these terms. I can describe my motion egocentrically, right? Things that are in front of me, behind me, to the right of me, to the left of me, right? And that, of course, varies by how I'm oriented because it is relative to me. But I can also describe my position allocentrically. I can say where I am relative to the North Pole, for example, right? So the first is a first-person egocentric way of moving through the world. The second is an allocentric third person. Now extend that out. People are much less egocentrically oriented when they're describing the experience of their state than they are normally. They're much more allocentrically oriented, and that makes sense given how intensified the experience of reality is to them. It's like the salience of reality is finally capable of eclipsing the narcissistic glow of our own ego. And for a moment, at least, or for several moments, we get release, right? And this is a, an important idea. Nirvana means to blow out, to extinguish, or the Vedanta term moksha is release. We get a release from, right, the imprisonment, the self-idealization by the super salience, and therefore the bullshitting of our own egocentric perspective. I mean, do you not sometimes wish to be free from the prison cell of the super salience of your own ego? So, As I've been suggesting to you, these higher states of consciousness have a lot of features of insight. I've already talked about the insight. Remember, we did the nine-dot problem, for example. Those aha moments. Because you get in that moment of insight, you get a flash of insight. You get sort of super salience. Things are making sense to you. You get insight, it's almost visual, into an underlying pattern, a unity, a oneness that wasn't there before. Your sense of what's relevant and important has been altered. And this ability to radically make sense, to find coherence, an underlying intelligible uh, integrative pattern, this we now know from current work is directly predictive of the experience of meaning in life. So Samantha Heinzelman, whose work uh, I, I recommend to you, I also got to meet Samantha uh, in person um, and got to talk to her about this. But what she has is good experimental evidence of the following. If you give people a bunch of scenes that make sense to them, that they can sort of determine an underlying pattern to, and then ask them how meaningful their lives are, they will rate their lives as more meaningful. The act, do you understand? The act of making sense, of finding coherence, actually makes people experience their lives as more meaningful. They're not being shown profound pictures of, or deeply dramatic or narrative scenes or emotionally, they're just showing some, some very basic pictures but the act of making sense, of finding coherence, elevates the sense of how meaningful their lives are. So, start to put this together. If you were to have an insight, that would give you an even more 
you know, sudden increase in your sense of meaning in life. And what if it's in flow? Well, it's going to be even more enhanced sense of meaning in life. And we already know that. The more often you have flow experiences, the more meaningful you find your life. And now what if it's beyond that? What if it's a higher state of consciousness that brings you this radical sense of deep intelligibility, not only of the world, but of yourself in both directions at the same time. Well, that, was going, that is going to give you a profound sense of increased meaning in life. Now, if you get, try to put this together, if you get enhanced meaning in life coupled to an enhanced sense of understanding, and that actually does guide you in improving your life, that is going to build a tremendous amount of confidence in you that you have found a path towards self-transcendence and wisdom. We can start to understand some of the Buddha's confidence. Now, what do we know about these flashes of insight? Well, Tobolinsky and Reber in 2010, this is a different Reber, not the implicit learning Reber, right? talk about how insight is a fluency spike. Uh, I, I, although it's related to flow, it's not the same thing. Fluency is uh, a, gen it's a general property of all of your cognitive processing. So how, how can we understand it? Well, initially people thought that fluency was a, a sense of how easy it was to process things. So the basic idea is, if I make it easier for you to process information, you will rate that information as better, more trustworthy, more believable, regardless of the actual semantic content. So for example, it, compare this, right, to this, the contrast isn't as great, and if I were to get you to read some test text in black and the exact same text in the orange, you will rate what you read in the black as better, you'll have more confident in it, more likely to be true. The semantic content is exactly equal. It's because it's easier for you to process the black and white contrast than the orange on white contrast. Now it turns out it's not quite um, ease of processing just because simply repeating a stimulus doesn't trigger this sense of fluency. It's more like how accessible information is, how applicable it is. I would argue that it's how well your system is zeroing in on right, the relevant information. How much has the information be formatted for you so that you can uh, zero in on relevant information. A way of thinking about this to help make sense of it is our discussion of psychotechnologies. Alphabetic literacy made your cognitive processing more fluent, and that improved your ability, your, power, your cognitive power, and by improving your cognitive power, that gives you an enhanced sense of how real and important the information you're processing is. So the idea here is when you are fluent, you are processing information very efficiently. You have, according to Tobolinsky and Reber, when you have an insight experience, what you're getting is a sudden spike in fluency. You're getting a, a significant increase in how fluently you're processing. And therefore, you start to judge the information that you're processing therein 
as likely being more real. Now, is this, uh, is this an absolute perfect rule? No. But the fact that it's domain general, the fact that it seems to be part of our evolutionary heritage, and there's also some independent logical argumentation indicating that this fluency heuristic that your brain uses is actually a very good strategy. It's very generally the case, not perfectly, not certainty, but very generally the case that in real-world situations, if you are processing them very fluently, you are picking up on the real patterns. So insight is zeroing in. And then we talked about flow as an insight cascade, which is even more zeroing in. And it's, in, it's coupled to implicit learning in which you're picking, remember, you're picking up on bigger patterns that you're not consciously aware of. You can't put them into declarative utterances. Do you see, see what's happening here? So in the higher states of, as you start to move towards the higher states of consciousness, like flow, you're getting this enhanced fluency. So your brain is working very optimally and the implicit uh, learning is picking up on very complex patterns and you're tending to zero in on the causal ones rather than the correlational ones. And using all of this machinery we've already discussed. Because as I mentioned, in the flow state, you're starting to get a lot of the features of mystical experiences and ultimately those mystical experiences that can be transformative. They apply enhancing meaning in life and your sense of connectedness to realness. You get the at one mint in the flow state, the radical loss of self-consciousness, you're not egocentric, although you know there's tremendous energy, it feels effortless to you, it's graceful, there's a super salience, it's intrinsically rewarding, it's like evolutionarily marked in, it's domain general and universal, all this stuff we've talked about, this is all being triggered in the higher states of consciousness. Okay, so this leads to a hypothesis I want to present to you. So, um, this hypothesis is a continuity hypothesis. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? We are doing this because we want a scientifically legitimate, scientifically plausible explanation of what's going on when somebody claims enlightenment, like Siddhartha Gautama. When somebody claims radical self-transcendence like Plato. Because we want something that gives a good explanation for what's actually happening and a good justification for why somebody should follow and be guided by these transformative experiences. Okay, so what's the continuity hypothesis? The continuity hypothesis is the idea so this is a hypothesis I'm giving you, although I, 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 as I was doing research on this, um, Newberg, independently from me, uh, we haven't spoken, uh, has also come up with his, uh, a version of the continuity hypothesis. It's not as developed as the one I'm going to give you, but it's completely consonant with it. So the idea is fluency gets enhanced in insight, insight gets enhanced in flow, right? So you've seen all those arguments already, and then the idea is, as I'm trying to show you, flow experiences 
can be enhanced into mystical experiences. And then there are mystical experiences that can bring about a transformative experience. These are the higher states of consciousness in which people, right, are willing to transform. We'll come back to the problem of transformative experience. So the continuity hypothesis is basically the same machinery is being used, but it is being exapted. Remember exaptation? It is being progressively exapted into more and more powerful processing that can afford what I'm going to argue a rationally justifiable guidance into the kinds of transformation that we are seeking when we are seeking to cultivate wisdom and enhance meaning in life. When we are seeking to awaken from the meaning crisis, we are trying to invoke one of these awakening experiences. And remember, that's what Buddha means, the awakened one. So, Newberg argues that if you have a lot of these kinds of experiences, what he calls little enlightenment experiences, or regular insights, that this will eventually produce these kinds of experiences. And I, I so this is a, not only a continuity hypothesis, this is a priming hypothesis, and I support that as well. The more you are practicing mindfulness, which we know is predictive of insight and flow, we know that mindfulness practices are predictive of uh, mystical experiences, we know that they're connected to transformative experiences, the more you can prime this pump, the more you will be able to bring about this enhanced connectedness, this enhanced anagogia. All right, so this, I think, idea of the continuity hypothesis will help us to begin to explain what's going on in the higher states of consciousness and eventually use the very same machinery that we talk about in explaining it to justify it, to give a rational justification for it. All right. So we know, for example, that in flow, there has to be a relevant expertise. Right? Remember, we've talked about this. The flow state is when your skills, your expertise, right, can meet the demands of the situation. If you don't have the relevant skills, you can't get into the flow state. Right? So I can get into the flow state as a martial artist because I have cultivated the expertise. I can get into the flow state while lecturing because I've been doing it for 24 years. I have the relevant expertise. So what we might ask, and what you should ask me right now, you say, well, John, like, what's flowing in these higher states of consciousness? What's, what's, what, what expertise are you using? Well, what I want to argue to you is it's a fundamental kind of expertise, one that's central to your everyday experience of making sense of the world on a day-to-day -day basis. So this ultimately goes back to work by uh, Marlo Ponti, especially in the book, The Phenomenology of Perception. But the people who I'm going to most often refer to, the work of Herbert Dreyfus, Dreyfus is famous within cognitive science for bringing uh, the work of Marleau-Ponty and others into cognitive science, and also the work of Dreyfus and Taylor. This is uh, the Charles Taylor that we've already talked about with connection to the actual revolution in a book uh, called Retrieving Realism. So what process is being optimized here? 
So Dreyfus and others talk about right, what they call optimal grip. Now, that's so, I mean, they mean it metaphorically because they're talking about cognition, but that is such a wonderful, felicitous term because again, it harkens back to the conformity theory of cognition, of contact epistemology that of course Charles Taylor uh, introduced us to. And what do they mean by that? So part of this is the idea that when we're, let's talk about it first perceptually. When I'm trying to perceive an object, especially if I don't know what the object is initially, I don't remain static. Okay, I'm gonna move around the object until I get to a place that gets into a trade-off relationship. Remember we've talked about these trade-off relationships before. What trade-off relationship do I want? Okay, I wanna get to a place where I can see as many details of the cup as possible. So that sort of zooming in, right? Oh, wow. But if I zoom in too much, I lose on the other end. I don't get a, a sense of the gestalt. Remember that? I don't get a sense of the overall thing. So what I do is I move the cup around so that I get a place where I get the best optimization for my needs. It's, all, it's always relative to what I'm doing. I get a best optimization between the overall grasp of the cup, its gestalt, and a grasp of its details. So I'm trying to get a dynamic balance between. That's why when you draw faces, you draw them from the perspective of the optimal grip you have on it. You represent a face in such a way, right? You draw a face in such a way that you try to get as much of the whole and as much as the detail together. You don't draw a face by like drawing someone's eyes really in detail. And you don't draw a face by zooming out, right, too far. You try and get exactly that right balance. So a lot of perception, you're unaware of this because you learned how to do this when you're like a young child. But think about, for example, again, if you're learning a martial art, okay? Just as an example. So when you're relearning how to perceive your opponent, part of what you're trying to do is try to get an optimal grip on your opponent. So, right, in Tai Chi, for example, we talk about tiger eyes. We, we, you don't want to hard focus on the person's face. One of the mistakes that many people make going into a confrontation is they hard focus on face or they hard focus on weapon. We know this from psychological research, by the way. You get people who have been held up, you know what they can give you an accurate description of? The gun, not the person who was holding them up because they hard focus, right? They lose that soft vigilance. So what you want to do is you want to get the right, and it takes practice, right? You want to flow over the person. You don't want to be sort of flowing in a blurry fashion. You want to get this sense where you've got a sense of their whole body, right? But you can zero in on details. And then you also are trying to get an optimal grip on your own body. So for example, you're going to take a stance, right? And the point about the stance, right, is to try and give you an optimal sense Right? give you an overall sense of, so now I'm aware of my whole body, right? But I'm also aware of it in, in, in connection to the details of where, like where my fingers are, where my wrists are, what my joints are doing. And I'm taking a stance that I can ease, that's multi-apt, I can easily transform it into what I need to do. I get an optimal grip. You do this cognitively. 
Eleanor Roche pointed this out in terms of the categories you use. So you will describe things as a cat or a dog. That's how you'll usually talk about it. You usually won't go a level up and say, oh, that's a mammal. So this creature's walking by on the road. And somebody says, hey, look at the mammal. That'd be weird, right? Now, they might go down to another level, like there's the Cocker Spaniel. But generally, they're doing that because they have some intimate familiarity. Most of us would say, hey, look at the dog. Rosh calls this the basic level. Why do we default to the basic level in the way we talk about it? Why is this a table? Why is this a marker? Why do we default to the basic level? Because it's how we get our cognitively optimal grip. See, there's two things I want to trade off in when I'm categorizing things. Here's my category, right? I want as much similarity within the category as I can get, right? But I want as much difference between two categories. And those aren't a trade-off. Because as I go higher up, right, I get much more abstract and I lose the specific differences. When I go down here, right, I'm getting too specific. I'm losing the broad generality. We've talked about this before. You're always trying to balance between getting, remember, the higher, the higher states of consciousness, as comprehensive as detailed as you can and those are always in a trade-off relationship so you talk about dogs and cats because that's your way of getting an optimal cognitive grip on the world remember we did this cat remember we talked about how you're simultaneously going up to the gestalt and down to the detail you're optimally gripping between the gestalt of the word and the features of the letter and you're doing it right now you've got a way of paying attention that allows you to read you had to practice that optimal gripping you're going into a first date what do you do well you're trying to get a sense of the person now, uh, here's where the term here's optimal the grip is a little infelicitous, uh, but so don't don't read anything, um, misread any sexual misconduct into my use of the term. I'm using it in a technical sense. But you're trying to get an optimal grip on the other person, and it's very difficult. Notice how you're you're toggling your attention and your interaction, and, and you know this because of the kinds of advice your friends give you. They'll say things, right? I, I happen to be straight, so they'll say to me, for example, you know. Look into her eyes. Not too much. Smile. Not too much. Laugh. Not too often. Ask questions, but not too many. And mix it up between these strategies, but not chaotically. And you're like sort of, ugh. And yet, here's the thing. Do it. It works, at least sometimes. Figure out, you find that sweet spot where you're getting the sense of the person, both as a whole and in detail. I'm giving you multiple examples. You're always engaged because you're always trading between these trade offs. You're 
always optimally gripping. You have to do this domain general. You have to do it in every domain. When you're swimming, going on a date, reading, right, looking at an object, you're trying to get an optimal grip. And you have practiced this skill so that you're extremely proficient. You do it without realizing it. Herbert Dreyfus is one of his favorite examples. You know how close to stand to somebody. How close should you stand to somebody? In order to get an optimal grip on the interaction. There is no algorithm. It's like always stand four inches. That's ridiculous. Always stand one foot. It depends on the context, it depends on the person, but you have that skill. Most of you are not socially awkward. So, here's what I'm proposing to you. What if you didn't, when you, what if you got into a flow state that wasn't, it isn't the flow state of doing a martial art. Isn't the flow state of playing music, jazz or something. What if what you were getting into a flow state about was the ability to optimally grip the world? What if I made it really what challenging, it really like challenging. altering your state of consciousness, state of consciousness disrupting, disrupting your normal framing, your normal and framing. then opening up? Opening up. Because, opening right? Up. Remember what's happening in this higher state. You're both opening up your attention and zeroing in to see the world in a grain of sand. What if you were all, what if you had this all, optimal grip, but it wouldn't be on a, just one object. It would be a dynamical, flowing, optimal grip on the world and yourself. The most comprehensive attempt to make sense. Not intellectually, theoretically, but optimally gripping reality. This deep conformity. So what I'm proposing to you is that what's happening in a higher state of consciousness is that people are flowing in their capacity to cognitively, perceptually, and even with the very machinery of their self, get an optimal grip on both the world and themselves. And that's why this relation is experienced as so intensely powerful and so intensely revealing. Now, this would help to make sense of things because again, if there's a deep continuity between the higher states of consciousness and things like flow and insight, that would help to explain why the disruptive strategies are so important for getting into the higher states of consciousness because disruptive strategies are central, as I mentioned, to insight. You have to bake, break up the bad framing. Now you can do that by using mindfulness, breaking frame. You also are naturally disposed to do this. Your mind wanders mind distracts you from your task. And many of us find this annoying. It's like, ah, why can't I keep my mind on something? But why is mind wandering so hardwired into us? And one of my uh, former students and now colleague and good friend, Zach Irving, uh, is becoming one of the world experts on mind wandering. 
I would point you to his work if you want to go into it in depth. What I would want to say for here, and I think Zach would agree with me on this, is that one of the things that mind wandering does is it enhances your capacity for insight. Because by distracting you from how you framed a situation, it can help you return and break up that fixated frame. And there's work by Siegel and others showing that moderate amounts of distraction actually enhance your cognitive flexibility. The reason why we mind wander, amongst other reasons, I'm not saying it's the sole reason, but one of the things it does is it helps disrupt our framing so that we can break frame and make a new frame. That's often why, and, and, and this is why people have built a whole mythology around incubation. Go and sleep on it or go for a walk or take a shower. Basically what you're doing is a disruptive strategy of distraction. As I mentioned, you can deliberately, more deliberately engage in a disruptive strategy through mindfulness practices. We know experimentally that if you give a person problem and you introduce entropy, noise into the problem, a moderate amount, that can help them uh, have an insight. And we know, for example, that when your brain is engaging in insight, there's good reason to believe, as I mentioned, that there's a significant shift, we talked about this, between the left and the right hemisphere. That's an internal disruptive strategy. So your brain has all these strategies and you can learn some psychotechnologies that enhance all this powerful disruption. So, the disruptive machinery that's integral to insight can be exacted and enhanced to bring about a higher state of consciousness. So, what, so what these, all of these disruptive strategies do with insight is what's called de-automatization. So you remember with the nine dot problem, you automatically, remember this because we're going to need this when we talk about other things like stoicism, you automatically, unconsciously, saw it as a square. You framed it uh, in terms of the square, you automatically, unconsciously, right, formulated it as a connect the dot the problem, and then that automatic framing blocks you from solving it. And in order to get out of that, you have to de-automatize your cognition. Now we talked about this, when we talked about attentional scaling and mindfulness, just reminding you that what's happening in these disruptive strategies is very significant de-automatization. Something else is going on with these disruptive strategies. What these disruptive strategies do is they increase the variation in your processing. Often by introducing a lot of noise, right? A lot of entropy into your processing. You're increasing the variation in what you're paying attention to, what processes you're activating in your brain. You're just increasing the variation. Now, why is increasing variation good? Increasing variation is good because what, when, when I increase the variation, what I can do is get more awareness right, of what's invariant. As I, the more I vary what I'm doing, the more I become aware of what's not changing. Right? So as I move around this object, right, lots of stuff is varying, 
but its shape is remaining constant to me throughout the variation, and that's why I think of the shape as more real, because it's invariant through all this variation. So when I increase the variance, so I pick up, I'm more able to pick up on what's invariant. Now the thing we need to know is that there are two kinds of invariance, two kinds of things that are not changing in your attempts to get a grip on the world. There's good in, right? There's good invariance and bad invariance. Okay. What's good invariance? By opening up the variation, I pick up on bigger patterns that aren't changing that are real patterns in the world. This is what goes on in deep learning networks, right? You pick up on much more complex patterns of invariance. You get more in contact with what's really going on. Again, think about what you do when you want to make sure what something is. You increase the variation. Not only am I looking at it, I'm looking at it, I'm touching it. I increase the variation to find out what's invariant because if I have increased variation, and I find out what's invariant in it, that often tells me what's more real. That's good, right? So, that can get me real patterns. But there's also bad invariance. Bad invariance, right, is like what's happening in when you're trying to solve the nine dot problem. You keep trying to solve it, keep failing to solve it because there's something you need to change that you're not changing. Bad invariants are ways in which you're formulating your problems, framing your experience, that's actually blocking you from solving your problem. So Kaplan and Simon in 1990 talked about a heuristic, a strategy we use called the notice invariance heuristic. This is the idea. Across all of your different problem formulations that are failing, you keep doing this and you keep doing and I can't get it. I can't get it. I can't get it. When you increase the variation, you can then apply the notice invariance heuristic. What am I not changing in all of these failures? What am I not changing in all of my failed frames? Because very often, what you're not changing is precisely what you need to change. And so the notice invariance heuristic can help you break bad framing that has been causing your failure. Now this, of course, requires humility on your part. This is why the deep connection between wisdom and humility, I would, I would suggest. Paying attention, remembering your failures, such that you can apply this to be very helpful. Now, let's talk about, this is one problem they were talking about, Kaplan and Simon. But what if, what if I don't just have one error here, but I have a whole system of errors? Very often, when you look at cognitive development, right, you take the two-year-old, sorry, four-year-old, because they can count, 
count out the five candies. They can count. They know that there's five here and there are five here, but they reliably choose that row, five candies. Why? Because the amount of space taken up is super salient to them. We've talked about this before. It misleads them. But they don't just make this error with candies. They make this error systematically. They make this error all over the place in many different domains. It is a systematic error. So I can reliably predict that the four-year-old will not only be making this error, they'll be making errors about seriation, about trying to line objects up in terms of increasing height, they'll have difficulties, etc. So it's not just one error, it's an entire system of errors. And the way you go through a developmental change, what kids do, is they find, right, they find a systematic pattern of errors and they find an insight that's not just about one problem, but an insight that will apply systematically to that all of those interconnected, interrelated errors. And when they have that systematically penetrative insight, when they've found that nexus of errors so they can massively intervene on themselves, then they go through a developmental change and they grow up cognitively. They mature. And that is what can be going on in the Enlightenment experience. By opening up variation massively, you can not only connect to what's more real and feel more connected to the world, remember the world, you can get below the ways in which you are being held back in your own development. You can zero in on the systematic errors and afford a radic radical developmental change. As the adult is to the child, the sage is to the adult. You go through you can get one of the hallmarks of wisdom, what McGee and Barbara called seeing through illusion into what is real. Okay, so we're still not done this discussion because this is pivotal, trying to understand these higher states of consciousness. Pivotal to understanding the power, the legacy of the actual revolution and therefore what we need to salvage from it. We do not believe in its two-world mythology, but we cannot afford to abandon all of this powerful psychotechnology of interve intervention, of self-transformation, of self-transcendence, of the cultivation of wisdom, and ultimately the deep enhancement of meaning in life by bringing about a developmental harmony within and a powerful conformity and connectedness to the world without. So next time, I want to continue and complete the discussion about the higher states of consciousness. Thank you very much for your time. Make some noise for Vivek, you joining the Kira the Dawn. Holy cow! You see that? I was just trying to get optimal grip on my microphone. My microphone was in a different place to where it normally is. I couldn't get you know, that optimal grip. I started to plunge into chaos. And out of flow. That's called friction. You don't want none of that. Whoa! Blah, blah, blah. Ass up.
Make some noise for yourself, anyway, but it's on my zone. How you doing out there? How you doing out there? Yo, hi, excuse me, I'm getting drowned by emotes on the screen. Yo, how you doing? How'd you feel? How'd you feel? How'd that go for you, huh? Hey, thank you, Timothy Delgado, for the super chat. It says, Steve, go hard. Who's Steve? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 that was so epic. I love that one so much. Yo. Hey, look at that dog. Ow! What's up, little lamb? Akira! Your work. Wings of a butterfly. Honestly, the effects are incredible. Hey, thank you. That's very nice. That's a nice thing. Uh, Wedex Peace says, gonna watch this again. It's packed with gold. Ooh, it is. Ooh, it is. Oh, so many songs just in that one. So many bangers. Yeah. Hey, look at that mammal. That's why Theo Vaughn's funny, because Theo Vaughn is say, hey, look at that labradoodle. Or like uh, Mitch, Mitch Hedberg, similar, you know? Sometimes just that, that extra level of specificity. Specificity. Uh, that's just what, because it pulls you out a bit, right? Yeah. Ooh, baby! D-Man says, gotta hit replay after the show. Yes, you do. Mason Vivaki basically screaming, engage in variation! That's right. Engage in variation! Uh, how many times did he say Gestel? You know? Mel Paradise says, I've been sewing masks since the beginning of quarantine. Current mask counts, 2,829. That's a lot of masks. That's a lot of, ma that's a lot of masks right there, Mel Paradise. What's up, Little Lamb? Says, I get chills being called out. Little Lamb, what's up? Hey, Word XP says the level of words part is great. There's so many great bits. Also, I like the bit where he was, bit where he was throwing shade on four-year-olds, you know? <laughs> Yo. Yo. Valvina says Theo Vaughn is based. Theo Vaughn is very based. Theo Vaughn's also really nice. He's really sweet. He's a lovely guy. What a lovely guy he is. He sent me such a lovely message recently. Like, he's such a beautiful soul. I might have to go to Nashville just to say hi. Uh, Jay Guev, Akira the Vibe Savior. Hey, I'll just play my part, baby. We're doing all we can out here, you know, to regulate these vibes, you know. Feeling real good about the vibe regulation right now. I think we did a good job in January. I think January we did a good job of regulating those vibes. I think we made a difference out there in the world, you know. When I say out there in the world, I mean in here, because that's where it is. As above, so below, as within, as without, so within, as within, so without. Woo. Hey, look at that mammal. Who is going to say tomorrow, who's going to look for the first opportunity to say, Hey, look at that mammal. Hey. Optimal grip. 
That's right, baby. Look at you. Look at you. You are you a gripping genius. You spend your whole life just learning and practicing and getting in and out of that optimal grip, right? What XP says Theo Vaughn is one of the funniest guys ever. I think he's my favorite living comedian, uh, other than Norm Macdonald, obviously. Like if Norm, I suppose you could look at it generationally, right? trying to think, is there someone of Theo Vaughn's generation that's, uh, I don't know, I love Theo Vaughn. Theo Vaughn, you know, some people, they're just funny. They say they're just funny, you know? Some people are just funny. Some people just look sideways, and it's funny. You know, Theo Vaughn doesn't need to write jokes or nothing. Theo Vaughn can just raise an eyebrow. That shit is hilarious to me. You know, plus he's mullet gang, you know, and that's mullet gang, that's, that's just like, that's the upper echelon. You know what I mean? That's that. That's that top tier. You know what I mean? That's 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 that uh, king of the hill. D-Man says, "Mammalians." Local lamb says, "You know what? The, you know that these times are hard. But what would life be if not? Life is life is suffering. What you gonna do about it?" Yo, make some noise for Viveki John, baby. Make some noise. What did you learn? What was your fa- what was your takeaway? What was your favorite bit of that? What what was uh, salient to you? What glittered? What was super salient? Super salient. Yo, I'm gonna form a punk band called the Super Salients. Akira and the Super Salients. Ow. Would you well summer? Jay Guev says seeing Akira with space in the background gives me some extraterrestrial meaning. Yo, that's my aesthetic basically, you know? I think everything looks good if it's in space. Have you noticed that? Just like put something in space and it's just good. It just looks good. Get a hot dog in space. Looks amazing. You know? D-Man says sure like their memory glands on them mammals. You know, you could t- that's how you knew Morrissey was on some next level shit. You remember that Morrissey lyric where he said, uh, Let me get my hands on your mammary glands And let me get your head on the conjugal bird I say Yeah, that's some hot, that's some real, that's some real shit right there. You know what I mean? That's some, that's some next level lyricism, some next level player conversation. Anyone, have any of you ever tried that in real life? Have you, ever, have you ever stepped to a lady in the club and said, hey, let me get my hands on you. You ever try that? No. Why not? Maybe try it next time you're in the club. <laughs> next time you're in the club. Hey, Mount Paradise, I've got a song for you. I'm going to play that. I mean, I'm going to talk over it while we continue. Uh, you know, just doing our post post set chit chat. This is called Sown. Nice, nice, nice. YouTube hero Alex says exclamation mark merch. Check out the complete Meaning Wave merch collection here. Yes, you should. We got brand new stuff in the store. Uh, it's not as easy to find as it should be because I just have not been able to make time to. Uh, organize the shop a bit better but i would suggest going there and just typing leopard and being in jo- being uh, awash with joy at what you discover you know robert easley said i did but it was a strip club i feel that that would be like <clears throat> i feel you could get away with it easier in an indie club obviously um probably least easily in a, in a strip club i don't know 
depends what kind of strip club, I guess. It's one of them ones where they got bullet holes in the pole. Yo! Little Lamb, Akira, what were your intentions when you first started this? Well, it depends what you mean by this. If you mean this stream, my intention was to soundtrack uh, the Higher States of Consciousness Part 1 lecture by Viveki John, you know, and to, to make it super salient. If you mean this existence, I don't remember that far back. But maybe one day I'll remember. What up, Melt Paradise? We have drive through strip clubs in Portland. How's that work? You gotta literally drive through. That's crazy. What do they put? Do they stick the booty in the window? Do they like flap a titty through the? Do you wind down the window? And supposed to be a highbrow stream what are you talking about why are we talking about strip clubs this is this is a lecture theater by joe hey it's a phased beat it's phase still in the building i even noticed i put a phase beat on yo man like phased word xp says it was pretty funny when john viveki was talking about there is no way to define an optimal amount of space between you and another person what are you suggesting? Hey, it's phased. Phased is in the club. What's up, phased? Phased, getting that optimal grip. Spicy Shoe Guy says, drive through window booty. Red XP says, the world is epic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'd be, uh, I'd be wary of going to a drive through strip club in Portland. You know, like one of them little Antifa types might just straight up run up and like kibosh you in the boner, you know? Ain't nobody got time for that. I ain't never been to Portland. What's Portland like? All I know about Portland is every time, if I ever go on Twitter, there'll be like a video of Portland and it's like usually on fire, you know? Usually it's like some some little rascals classed, clad in black, like smashing a bookshop or something. Is that just Twitter just being exaggerated? Is Portland actually just like very chill? I have no idea, you know? I've never been there. Um, <laughs> What's up, Zach? Says, my Newgrounds Game Fact Quest name back in the day was Super Saiyan Alucard. I think I heard that name before. That feels like a familiar name. Uh, 2076 says, Akira, at some point in the recent past, you were talking about the so-called... Uh, Elites, yeah, I don't like, I don't call them that because they're they're not very elite, they're rubbish. Um, like, you know, when I think of elite, I think of like, you know, someone who's really good at playing tennis, you know, or like someone who's really good at Minecraft, you know, someone who's really good at build battle. When I think of elite, I think of someone who could be playing build battle in Minecraft, you know, and someone could say uh, a jar of kunquats, you know, you know, or like, or like a bowl of M&Ms, you know in every color of the rainbow. And uh, the person would construct the perfect, beautiful representation of the, of the bowl of, of M&Ms or, or, or the jar of concords, you know? I would call that elite. That's, that's the correct usage of the word elite. Uh, not those morons who've been doing a very, very terrible job of trying to run the world. Ad infinitum. Uh, but anyway, I didn't finish the message that 2076 said. He said they shouldn't be called that. How about the cronies? I don't know, that's, that sounds too much like a fun adventure film from the 80s, doesn't it? You know, that'd be a fun film about, you know, some, uh, 
some incompetent bank robbers or something, you know, uh, who like accidentally fall down a mine shaft uh, into an alternate dimension, you know, and end up on some like journey and they find a wizard or something. A big bag of magical peanuts. Yeah. I ain't worried too much about those goons right now, you know. Uh, I'm fully, 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 uh, fully ensconced in, in uh, you know, generating uh, streams and albums and vibes of meaning and glory, you know. That's me. You know, I'm going hard in the paint, in the realms of glory and uh, meaning, you know. And I'm rather glad, um, in a way, that uh, things are as they are right now because. Uh, all sorts of reasons, and maybe we'll talk about it more another time, but I feel like uh, the cork is out of the bottle, you know? I feel like the uh, one aspect of the uh, last, say, four years was a kind of cork in a bottle situation, and that cork is now gone. That means it's uh, fizzy champagne time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that part of the game, you know? I like that bit of the game. I like the bit of the game, you know, fizzy champagne time. And, uh, you know, with that being said, I, I think that's probably enough post-amble. You know, enough post-amble. But uh, before I get out of here, I might, I, might, I might bless you all with a song, you know. I might bless you all with a, with a beautiful song. How about that? Who wants to hear a beautiful song? Make some noise! In the chat! If you want to hear a beautiful song. Ekans Villiers says, oh, look, a military helicopter. Whack. <laughs> Whack. All right, all right, all right. All right. And this whole transformation was made possible by this encounter with death that Mother Ayahuasca gave me. Hey. That leads me to ask, what is death? Our materialist science reduces everything to matter. Materialist science in the West says that we are just meat, we're just our bodies. So when the brain is dead, that's the end of consciousness. There is no life after death. There is no soul. We just rot and are gone. But actually, many honest scientists should admit that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science, that we don't know exactly how it works. The brain's involved in it in some way, but we're not sure how. Could be that the brain generates consciousness the way a generator makes electricity if you hold to that paradigm then of course you can't believe in life after death when the generator is broken consciousness is gone but it's equally possible that the relationship is more like the relationship of the tv signal to the tv set in that case when the tv set is broken of course the tv signal continues and this is the paradigm of all spiritual traditions Hi. We are immortal souls, temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow. We are immortal souls, temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow and to develop. Whoa. 
want to know about this mystery, the last people we should ask are materialists, reductionists, scientists. Yeah. They have nothing to say on the matter at all. Let's go rather to the ancient Egyptians who put their best minds to work for 3,000 years on the problem of death and on the problem of how we should live our lives to prepare for what we will confront after death. And the ancient Egyptians expressed their ideas in transcendent art, which still touches us emotionally today, and they came to certain very specific conclusions. does survive death and that we will be held accountable for every thought, every action, every deed we have lived through in our lives. But we better take this precious opportunity to be born in a human body seriously and make the most of it. We are immortal souls, temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow. We are immortal souls. Temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow. We are immortal souls. Temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow. We are immortal souls. Temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow. Hey! Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, what's up? And new from Akira Denon and Graham Hancock. We are Immortal Souls from the forthcoming album. Coming out this month. Uh. Uh. Yeah, do. Yeah, do. Yeah, be a year it out. So you all can look forward to that. Another beautiful month. Here in the meaning of Autonomous Zone. Where is Christmas? All the time. Where the waves are ever flowing. Where the vibes are always good. And the chat section is always awash. With righteous emojis. Painted by the most waviest of individuals. The most beautiful and brave. Citizens. Of the MAC. Yeah. And with that being said, your boy is getting out of here. And we'll be back tomorrow morning. And if YouTube Hero Alex is in the building, and if Timothy Telgasso is in the building, the FBI didn't drag his ass off into the chuck him in a van. Uh, we might we might well spin a wheel and see where we're, what we're up to tomorrow morning on the on the on the morning show, you know, in the club of meaning. Club of meaning. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Thank you for being here. It's always a wonderful thing to do. This, uh, this meaning crisis and chill. I do enjoy it very much. It is a privilege and a joy and a, and a spinning wheel. How are we going to start tomorrow's show? Wheel of spin. Nice hip hop.
Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. That's something to look forward to. We're going to wake up with 90s hip-hop tomorrow. How about that? On Twitch. Akira the Dawn on Twitch from 7 a.m. CT. Uh, 90s hip-hop to get your get your morning cracking in a, in, a, in a joyful fashion. Yeah. Splash, splash. We'll be back here tomorrow night. Uh, we're going to take uh, a uh, night off from the Bible studies. We normally do the Bible studies <laughs> on Wednesdays. Should we be doing those on Sunday, really, shouldn't we? What am I thinking? What am I thinking? I might switch it around. I don't know. Anyway, but tomorrow we, we're doing the uh, Meaning Wave. We've got to do the Meaning Wave uh, Top 50. Meaning Wave Top 50 for January. Count down the official Meaning Wave Top 50. See which songs are popping in the Meaning Wave charts. What you guys been listening to. You and the other couple hundred thousand other people. Uh, that listens to Meaning Wave on a regular basis, you know? Sunday, 2076, we always do the uh, Meaning Wave Live Super Request show, don't we, on, on Sundays? That's when you get your Meaning Wave Super Request. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. And uh, Wednesday is when we do, uh, you know, our live scoring, uh, The Good Doctor and his biblical stories. YouTube Hero Alex says, ooh, yeah, we can open up the casino of meaning again. What's that? Oh, I see you mean the casino of meaning and uh, what's going to be in the in the in the tank. Ah. Ah. All right, boom. Anyway, uh, you boys getting out of here. If you want to support the wave, of course, you know what to do. Uh, you can become a member of this channel. You can uh, support us on Patreon. Uh, you can go to meaningwave.com and cop epic merch like this lovely hoodie I'm wearing now. Or that, uh, you know, the lovely velvet leopard suit that I was wearing yesterday that everyone seems to be very excited about. And, uh, you know, but of course, remember, the most important thing you can do is spread the message of Meaning Wave. Become a Meaning Wave missionary and spread the word of Meaning Wave. Maybe go door to door, knocking. Yes, who is it? Who's there? Doctor? Doctor who? Nobody watches that anymore. No, I'm here to spread the word of Meaning Wave. Ah, yes, the word of Meaning Wave. The word of Meaning Wave, yes, indeed. Spread the word of Meaning Wave. All you have to do is spread the word of Meaning Wave. There's lots of things you could do, I guess. You could go door to door. You could post a letter. You could go on a jumping on someone's uh, Instagram comments section. You know, there's lots of ways of doing it. But I, I would suggest uh, letting at least one person a day know that Meaning Wave exists. And that way, uh, you know, we really do uh, grow, you know. And uh, that's a beautiful thing right there. And uh, once again, thank you for being here. Uh, all that remains for us to do is the buy five, and we'll see you tomorrow. Three, two, one. Bye five. I need a finishing screen. <laughs> what the flip am I doing? Nearly a year, and I still ain't got one. <laughs>